I'd like to welcome Dr. Tishman again um, for a his second of a couple lectures over the past couple months. So uh, today the talk, however, is abdominal catastrophes, something with which I imagine many of the surgeons are quite familiar, but something that the uh, medicine-trained folks can always hear more about. So thanks, Dr. Tishman. Good timing. Hopefully somebody was in an acute abdomen now. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay, thanks, Mike. Um, hopefully this will be useful to everybody. It is a bit more geared toward non-surgeons, but since we, these cases end up being things we need to work on together, hopefully it will be uh, helpful to everybody. But I do want this to be interactive, which is why I was trying to get people to come down here. Uh, or my alternative strategy of coming up there didn't work out because the battery died on the uh, mic. But anyway, okay. So, um, and then actually, I'm not going to be going directly in this order, but we'll kind of, you know, just look at the overview of why this is a problem, uh, and then the evaluation of patients who have a, uh, an acute abdomen, and I'm focusing a lot on the acute abdomen occurring in a patient who's here already for something else, which is the nightmare for both the MICU team and for the surgical team that comes to see the patient in the MICU. Uh, we'll go through some specific entities. And, and some general management, and it'll be kind of mixed up. We're not going to do like one of these things at a time. And, and so we'll be uh, focused a lot on specific cases for discussion. So, 67 year old guy in the ICU, pneumonia, has coronary disease, CHF, diabetes, usual, and seems to have some vague abdominal pain, not tolerating tube feeds, belly is kind of distended, a little tender, but doesn't have perineal signs and a fever. So, and then and the view of this from the non-surgeon is that the belly is some sort of black box and evil things go on there, which is true. Um, all right, so what do you think? Anyway, yes, Dr. Dean. Mesenteric ischemia. Mesenteric ischemia. Okay, what else? Ileus. 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 Is Ileus a diagnosis? Is there an ICD-9 code for Ileus? It probably is, actually. If not, it's an ICD-10 and it's acute or chronic. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but and actually, I'm glad you put that out there because it's really important that Ileus is not a, an endpoint diagnosis. And Ileus, I mean, yes, it could be from narcotics and whatever, but you got to think about why the patient's bowels aren't working, not just say, okay, they're not working. Anyway, what else? Obstruction. Okay. What else? Acalgus cholestitis. Good. Okay. Anything else? Pancreatitis. Good. All right, so we got a pretty good differential here. Could be a lot of things, <clears throat> and and this is obviously why this is a problem because the patients look like this, right? It's not like a guy who comes into the ED and he can tell you it hurts right here, and he can describe that it's colicky or crampy or you know started last night after I had this big pile of French fries. You know, you can't get that out of out of our ICU patients. So physical exam then. Uh, as much as a physical exam is very important, um, even though it does seem at times that from a general surgical perspective, um, oh, is Dr. Rubinson in this somewhere? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, actually, probably Dr. Hers in here. <laughs> um, but the problem, but anyway, um, the, the physical exam is really important, although there's sort of sometimes this tendency in both the ED and from general surgical consultants to say, well, I need a CT scan. 
And I certainly, as a general surgical consultant to the emergency department, had my wife call me up and say, she's an emergency medicine physician, call me and say, do I have to get a CAT scan or will you come down here and take this appendix out? Um, you know, you don't need CAT scans for everything. So physical exam is very important, but it certainly is more difficult in, in the ICU patient. So not to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that physical exam, but it is important to get some idea, does the patient really have perineal signs and the best thing I like as a general surgeon is just shake the guy around. None of this, you know, push hard, let go, all kinds of stuff that you probably learn physical exam in medical school and never do it again. But, you know, if, it's, if you shake somebody and it hurts the belly, that's bad. Uh, so don't even touch the belly, just shake the bed. Uh, listening for bowel sounds is absolutely useless. Uh, where it hurts, though, is important. So you want to kind of get some idea of, you know, just gently palpating what hurts and what doesn't hurt. Because then you just need to think anatomically, what is sitting underneath where my fingers are pushing when the guy says it hurts or where it looks like the patient hurts because they're squinting or, you know, they're, they're, they look like they're in pain because you're not going to get an answer out of somebody that's sick in the ICU and intubated. So physical exam is useful, but it usually doesn't lead to an endpoint, um, although, you know, sometimes it will. So what about radiographic evaluation? So what do we want to do? This vague belly pain, distension, what kind of imaging? What are you looking for in an abdomen, uh, abdomen X-ray? Okay. Does that does that help you? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Okay. Can you see free air on a plain film of the abdomen done in the ICU? You want an upright chest. But the answer to that question actually is not no. So, an abdominal film can be useful. I, I, I think in general they're relatively useless in, in the ICU. Um, and, you know, if you see somebody that's got free air that hasn't been operated upon, that makes the next decision very easy. The patient needs an operation. Boom, you're done with your operation. But it's rare you're going to see that because one thing is you like to do an upright chest, which you typically can't do. You can do a left lateral to cube, so the liver's up here, and you look for air around it, but, you know, that's a little tough to do. It is possible on a plain supine film to see free air if there's a lot of it, um, and it's actually called, sorry, it's actually called the, the regular sign. I don't know who regular was, but, but if you have film like this, then you actually are able to kind of see both sides of the bowel, and you can kind of look at some of these loops where you can not only see the difference between the wall of the bowel and the air that's inside it, but you actually see a differentiation between the wall and what's outside of it. So if you see both sides of the wall, that means there's air outside the bowel. So that's free air. I'm not advocating getting plain films pretty much at all for almost anybody, but um, since you've got to get it for the NG tube you put in anyway, you know, you'll have it. But um, they tend not to be all that helpful in the ICU, but occasionally it can be helpful. So most of the time when we're talking about imaging, we end up with CAT scan. And you can tell how old this slide is <laughs> cutbacks from the Clinton Health plan. Maybe we'll get Clinton health plan round two. You never know. Um, but really, if you can do any serious imaging of the abdomen, if you're not, you know, you're not convinced of a diagnosis based on labs, physical exam, whatever, a CAT scan is probably the most useful thing to do. And you know, it's kind of variable as to how much it'll help to have PO contrast, IV contrast. I mean, ideally both, but you know, there are reasons you may or may not do both of those things. Uh, ultrasound has a role too. It's really useful for looking at the biliary tree, really useful for looking at 
female uh, anatomy, which isn't usually an ICU issue. Uh, outside of that, it may not be that particularly helpful. This is just a nice little table kind of showing that, you know, CT scan probably costs a little more, obviously, of radiation. Uh, you like to give contrast. Uh, CTs aren't particularly mobile, although there are some around. Uh, and less opt uh, operator dependent. I mean, most uh, of us could look at a CT scan, certainly, particularly people uh, trained in general surgery can look at it and make a diagnosis, whereas an ultrasound, you know, you're very dependent upon the person looking at it. Uh, and whether they get the good images or not. Uh, bowel gas can obscure your ultrasound. Open wounds can make it very difficult. So CT is probably best, but sometimes it's too difficult to move somebody to CT. So that's a problem. So back to our patient. So we talked about our differential uh, ischemic bowel. Perforation, I'm not sure if that was mentioned, but can happen. <clears throat> C. diff, fakeocus cholestitis. Obviously, if somebody's had a previous procedure in the recent past, you got to think about that. <clears throat> and people will kind of bring up an abscess. And I'll put that into the same kind of categorization as the ileus thing. An abscess, to have an abscess in the abdomen, either something inside perforated or somebody came in from the outside and did something. You don't just kind of suddenly get an abscess in your abdomen. So you have to have some reason to have an abscess. Uh, but it certainly can happen, particularly if somebody's had a previous procedure recently, it's a reasonable thing to think about. Okay, so what kind of labs do you want in this guy? I mean, he's got some just vague, diffuse belly pain, a little distension. <laughs> lactate, the go-to thing. Okay, lactate, LFTs, white count, lights, okay. It's a basic. Pancreatic enzymes versus the pancreatitis. You okay? Yeah, I mean belly pain. If you got pilo, you can certainly have it. So it's reasonable to check urine too. Okay, so kind of the usual labs we get on pretty much everybody. All right, so this guy's got a white count of 20. Liver numbers are normal. Amylase lipase you see there. Lactate is four. So, what do you think? What do you want to do? Get a bladder. We'll come. We'll come back to that. Keep keep that thought for later. Give him fluid. Okay, good. Well, actually, uh, that'll be a point we we'll make later too. But what about diagnostically and therapeutically? What about an ultrasound? Okay. Any other? You thinking about the biliary? But all these are normal. So diagnosis. Could be pancreatitis, but so basically, unless the guy's like on multiple pressures and dying, we were going we're to scan him, right? <laughs> okay. I mean, I didn't, I didn't hear any surgeons here jumping on operating on him yet, right? Okay. What's wrong with this film? No, it's not backwards. <laughs> Jeez. We. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Got to talk to Doctor Chu. Doctor Dini's a little anatomic. Uh, It's full stomach, but where's that air? Where else could it be? Portal venous gas. And typically, if it's more peripheral like this, it's more portal venous gas. Um, and then if you look down lower, what's wrong with this loop of bowel? Pneumatosis. 
Now what do you want to do with them? Call a surgeon. Call a surgeon. <laughs> good. <laughs> That's from the neurointensivist. That's good. <laughs> Call a surgeon. And the surgeon will operate, I hope. <laughs> so, or maybe... Well, so what do you want to do first? Operate. So we're going to spend a little time on this because mystery ischemia is a really important and, and problematic uh, issue for us uh, in the ICU. So but when you got pneumatosis, you got to be worried that bowel's dead and you really don't want to wait to do other stuff to try and fix it. So it needs to come out. And another really important point about this case is that mild elevation of the pancreatic enzymes, particularly the amylase, is actually very typical for dead bowel. And so it's important not to kind of go down the pancreatitis route, but think about other things. Perfed ulcers can also give you a mild elevation of the amylase. Um, if you have an amylase of 4,000, that's pancreatitis. And I'm not even going to talk about pancreatitis today because you guys had a lecture on that early in the year. Um, but this guy, you know, this is some dead bowel needs needs to come out. So, uh, yeah, you just got to look, <laughs> one way or another. Take a peek in there, fix it. Um, another thing, you know, if you're thinking about this, if you had the high lactate and the guy had diffuse peritonitis on exam, I mean, one of the problems with ischemic bowel is it's hard. There's no test that will prove if somebody does not have it other than looking at it. So once you kind of go down a pathway of thinking about it too long, the patient just needs to be in the operating room or, you know, you just do something and look at it. Uh, this high morb morbidity mortality with this because it's usually sick people that get this and then you give them this big, bad uh, problem. Now, what are the, there are actually four different types. So what are the different types of mesenteric ischemia? So arterial, then that gets divided into two. So embolic, thrombotic, venous. And then it's non, okay. So thromboembolism is primarily from the heart, particularly atrial fibrillation. Uh, arterial thrombosis is somebody who's had disease there. They may have had some symptoms, might have been vague, and now they've clotted off the SMA. Venous thrombosis can be a real problem because it can be very vague, very nonspecific kind of symptoms. But it's typically related to hypercoagulable states, portal hypertension. Uh, maybe uh, previous trauma. And then non-occlusive is the guy that's like on lots of pressures for other things. There's poor flow because of uh, you know, poor cardiac output. I mean, one of the most painful things as a general surgeon is going to see somebody like on a VAD that has a high lactate and somebody's worried that the bowel is ischemic and the patient's also on APRV and it's like, what am I going to do? Somebody needs to come up with a good test for this that's not... Invasive. I mean, people do do things like doing, putting a laparoscope in at the bedside in the ICU, but that's not fun either. <clears throat> Just uh, as a quick point about the thromboembolism versus thrombosis. Thrombosis tends to occur right at the ostea uh, of the SMA, so you lose pretty much everything beyond that. So, you know, be from the you know, do, you know jejunal junction down to the, the colon. The emboli tend to lodge farther down, so you have jejunal sparing and spare uh, more of the colon. Um, that doesn't mean a heck of a lot at the, at the get-go, because either way, the patient needs to be in the operating room and you cut out whatever's dead. 
symptoms can be kind of vague, pain, nausea, vomiting. I mean, the classic, like, pain out portion to exam is the patient with more of a chronic ischemic picture, not the guy in the ICU with dead gut. The signs can be pretty vague, too. Uh, and labs, as we mentioned, certainly a white count's common, mild elevation of amylase lipase, lactate. May or may not go up early because you got to, I mean, you can have ischemia until it actually dies. You don't get the high lactate, but it, it can help. And lactates are really uh, they're problematic. I mean, there's pretty much, it's pretty clear that no matter, uh, no matter what the disease process, the higher lactate is, the worse you do. You can have people with really impressively high lactates that don't have dead anything just because of sepsis, maybe liver dysfunction. And you can have people with dead pieces of gut with lactates that are relatively normal. So it's not a perfect test either. Uh, the imaging, uh, so we touched on, on the imaging. What are you looking for on a CT scan? So we saw a pneumatosis, but what else? Some bowel thickening, maybe some distension of the bowel. If you see things like actually seeing a clot in the, uh, or, or atherosclerotic disease right at the takeoff of uh, the SMA, uh, thickened bowel. Uh, here's another example of some more pneumatosis. Uh, obviously, when you get to that, you know. and it's sometimes hard to tell pneumatosis, but just keep in mind there's this thing called gravity. So if you have air and fluid or air and stool in a thing, the air is going to be on top. If the air is actually underneath the stool like this, it's going to be in the bowel wall and not actually in the lumen of the bowel. So that's how you can hopefully tell the difference between pneumatosis and just air. <clears throat> and this is kind of a nice little putting some of this all together. You know, somebody has classic signs of ischemia with a belly pain and maybe a scan showing something or they're unstable. Basically, the patient just be in the operating room. And, that, and once you get there, you figure out what's dead. You can then work on revascularizing if you have to. You can do thrombectomies. You can you know, get vascular involved, do a, a bypass if you find that it's a, a chronic uh, 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 thrombotic event. Um, but you need to be in, in the uh, operating room because you gotta, whatever's dead has got to come out. That's got to be number one. And you might be able to reperfuse and then see if some other parts are not quite as dead or salvageable. And typically, you, know, you do the first look and then you come back in a day or so to see if anything else is dead. Uh, venous disease, again, is kind of more subtle, but you still often end up taking a look. I mean, if you're... If the guy's totally stable, no lactate elevation, you think the bowel's okay, you may, but you have evidence of that on a CT scan, you might just anticoagulate. Uh, but you guys got to be worried that some bowel could die. And non-occlusive is a problem because you got an underlying problem that's obviously bad, uh, but somebody still you need to look, cut out whatever's bad, deal with what you can to improve perfusion. So any questions about that? Uh, this just kind of goes a little, a little more detail in terms of the surgical things, SMA embolism, doing the embolectomy, uh, thrombosis, you know, might need a bypass, non-occlusive, you know, make sure the vessels are okay, take out what's dead, and then uh, venous thrombosis, cut out what's dead, and anticoagulate. Okay. Different patient, 52-year-old, cirrhosis, lymphoma, acute, like, like acute, <laughs> diffuse abdominal pain. Actually, and it's not coming into ED, but it's looking kind of sick. So, could be thrombosis. Obstruction. I'm trying to usually not quite so acute, but could be. Perforation. I mean, per, typically, there's like, if any of us are like walking along and then suddenly you got terrible belly pain, more than likely, I mean, it's certainly possible if you just threw a clot to something, but that usually won't cause that much pain that quickly. 
But if you suddenly perforate and you're filling your abdominal cavity with gastric stuff, that's going to hurt. And, you know, if, if it's really, if the story is good enough, you don't need this CAT scan. <laughs> um, and if, if, if the story and the exam, the guy's got peritonitis, you probably should just go to the operating room. And one and a really important thing that surgeons recognize, sometimes non-surgeons don't necessarily think about, is that the question often is, do I need to operate or not? It's not, what am I going to do? Or where is the hole? It's, does the guy need to be in the operating room? Because you'll find the hole. So that's why you know, sometimes you don't need any of this stuff. Um, having said that, I do know that sometimes it's a surgical consultant who asks for the CAT scan, even though the, the emergency physician knows the patient needs to be in the operating room and can't convince the surgeon of that. So I know it goes both ways. Again, I hear it all from my wife. So, All right, so this is, this is a problematic scan, right? <laughs> so, I mean, you've got, that's air that's not inside the bowel. This is stomach and bowel. This is fluid that's not inside the bowel. So this is just some more images of the same patient. Lots of air that shouldn't be there. So he needs an operation. This one I threw up just because it was a really <laughs> impressive, cool, it was just a lucky cut. So this is a patient in, uh, I believe she's in a neuro ICU, got some belly pain, um, got this CAT scan, and the, um, the CT, the radiologist says, her hole is right there. Go fix it. <laughs> so it actually, they actually caught the right slice showing the leak from her duodenum. And here's the contrast. And, and you, have, you have this contrast fluid level and pretty obvious perf that needs to be fixed. Uh, so again, with the right story and the right exam, you don't need this CAT scan. But you know, this, this certainly... I mean, you have free air without a previous operation. The patient needs an operation. Um, as an aside, since um, obstruction has kind of come up a couple of times, it's really extremely uncommon for somebody who's kind of here in the hospital for something else to suddenly obstruct. I mean, obstruction is, the vast majority of times in, in the developed world is caused by adhesions, and it just kind of happens, you know, people are going about their, their day. The only other, the other point I'll make that's a really important um, point is that if you've got somebody who really does have bowel obstruction with no scars on the abdomen, no hernias, that patient needs to be in the operating room because invariably there's some pathology, some tumor or something funky that's caused that obstruction. You don't just get obstruction without a hernia or previous adhesions. So that's just a caveat. But again, I think it would be really, really unusual for somebody like hanging out in the medical ICU with other stuff going on to suddenly obstruct. But, you know, anything can happen, so it's all, it should be at least on your list. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, it's pretty much, yeah, it's pretty much a, an organized running of the bowel. You start off, I mean, sometimes it's real obvious when you open these up and you see where all the schmutz is and the fibrinous stuff and you see a hole sitting there. Uh, but you want to run through the bowel carefully, you know, typically from top to bottom. You look at the stomach. You might, I mean, depending upon the situation, you might even, like, this to get behind the stomach, get the posterior wall, then run the whole small bowel, examine the whole colon. So there, there is a systematic approach. And you can do it. I mean, if you're facile and you do a lot of laparoscopic approaches, you can do it laparoscopically until you figure out that it's something you can't fix laparoscopically. Thank <laughs> you. 
<clears throat> for particularly with ischemic guys in terms of timing. Well, the angio may or may not help you. It depends upon what you think the pathology is. So, I mean, in the right s situation, if you think that somebody has ischemic gut and this CAT scan is um, equivocal or negative, then it kind of comes down to your clinical suspicion. And as I said, if, if you really don't have another answer and the patient's kind of sick from it, you may end up having to just take a look. Uh, but that, that, that gets to be a little more complex judgment. I think it would be a, unusual to catch it so fast that there's like nothing there. But it's possible. I've certainly seen people that, you know, we we're convinced on the picture that the patient needs an operation eventually get it, and we do find some small, small bit of dead gut. So it's possible. But you certainly don't want to wait too long. All right. Um, patient treated for pneumonia, diffuse abdominal pain, diarrhea, lab tests. So not that I'm leading the group down the garden path here, but so anything come to mind? All right, thank you. So possibly C. diff, and you're going to send off the stool for, for C. diff. Um, what else could you do to make the diagnosis, like right now, if you really want to do, if you can get somebody to do it? Put a scope up there and see some sort of membranes. I want you to never do that. Um, so then the management is going to be generally, you know, P.O. Vank. IV flagell, sort of secondary these days, I think. Uh, maybe PR bank, you know, some sort of combination of those things. Um, but I think it's really important, uh, and you can also get a CAT scan showing a thickened wall. This is a pretty impressive. I mean, this is all that's left of the lumen because the, this transverse colon is so thickened. Um, as I recall, I think this transverse colon came out as well as the rest of the colon. But... Um, it's important to, to as, and we kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago with the M and M, that it's really important to get surgical consultation early on. Not necessarily the surgeon is going to operate, but if the patient is going to need one, you, do, you want to do it sooner than later. You want to do it before the patient's on multiple pressures and dying from it. And we have a potential of a less extreme operation. The classic operation always being to take out the whole colon, except for leaving some rectum. Uh, big operation, someone who's really sick, and, and the outcomes weren't so great. So with this uh, minimally invasive approach uh, of just bringing up a loop ileostomy and basically washing out the colon, I mean, if you think about it, this is a, a brilliant idea of just getting rid of the badness without cutting out normal tissue because the colon itself isn't all that bad. It's not like it's being invaded. It's just all the toxin being produced by the bug. So if you just wash it out of the colon, patients can improve. So there's you know, a decent amount of evidence that this is actually useful probably. And it may be that we would do this sooner than we would otherwise take out somebody's colon. That's okay. It's not a big operation. You can do it laparoscopically. It's easily reversed down the road and the patient still has a colon. Uh, so the, the key message is get surgery involved early. Don't wait till the guy's dying. Uh, and if a patient has recurrent C. diff, then there's always Transplants, but we're not going to get into that. <clears throat> okay, 55-year-old admitted uh, with a STEMI, cardiogenic shock, got PCI, balloon pump. You know, this is this is heading toward nightmare category here. Uh, remains on a vent, now has fever, leukocytosis, and seems like right upper quadrant is tender. All right, so it could be, 
you know, we've already kind of talked on this dark ischemia. Clearly, that should be on your radar too. But you know, I said right upper quadrant, so now we're talking about. So why do people get a calculus cholecystitis? It's it's related to perfusion. That's right. So it's that you know, obviously it's a calculus. So it's not stone disease. It's a combination of blood flow to the wall as well as distension of the wall. So you take somebody. So the people who get it are people with peripheral vascular disease, elderly, it's people with diabetes, um, and then you add on that you know some shock state. You're not getting good uh, blood flow overall, and then the person's probably NPO. So now the gallbladder is distended. And by Laplace's law, you're adding tension to the wall, and now you have this wall that's not getting perfused well, it gets ischemic. And then it dies, and that's bad. So and that's the pathophysiology. Uh, so it's worth thinking about. Now, how are you going to make the diagnosis, though? Oh, I like the ultrasound. So we'll start off with lab work. So what, what do you expect on lab work? Now, actually, pretty much nothing except for the white count. Um, if you have elevated liver enzymes, it's actually, I mean, it is possible to have some of the inflammation on the gallbladder inflame some of the liver. It is possible for the inflammation of the gallbladder, although typically a stone disease, to actually cause obstruction of the, of the common duct. But if you think about it, the gallbladder itself is not in line with bile flow. So you should not have elevated bilirubin, you should not have elevated alquas or any of that kind of stuff. You may get some of that just because the guy's septic or there's some other things going on. So the fact that you don't see that should never rule out this disease because, in fact, most of the time they're actually normal. Imaging, we'll go with ultrasound. So ultrasound is always the, the, the simple first test because it's easy. I mean, you don't have to move the patient. You get somebody at the bedside, and you're looking for the typical signs of cholecystitis, thickened wall, pericholecystic fluid, Stones are not part of it. You'll often see some sludge, but that's not critical either. So you can make the diagnosis. Uh, CT is not bad, but again, you, know, you got to move the patient to the CT. This actually shows more than just some thickening. There's actually some air in the wall. So emphysematous cholecystitis, which typically is worse. Uh, what if the, you're still not buying it? Well, uh, HIDA? So the HIDA scam. Uh, just to, I threw that in here because it's so one a couple things about it. One is if you do it, it's important to give the patient if some morphine to constrict the sphincter body, increase pressure in the biliary tree, so you increase the chance that the stuff gets into the gallbladder. I mean, the way this works is you give them this uh, radioactive stuff. It gets concentrated by the liver, it gets into the biliary tree, and then we'll by the, by that way get into the gallbladder. But if the biliary tree pressure is low and the sphincter is wide open, it's going to come flying right through. So you constrict the sphincter with a narcotic, and you increase the chance it gets into the gallbladder. If it gets in the gallbladder, that gallbladder is not inflamed. You've ruled it out. If you don't get in there, that doesn't necessarily rule it in, but it can help. And one other caveat, because I've gotten a consult in the past for this, if you don't see the contrast at all, like, if somebody's jaundiced for some other reason, the stuff won't get concentrated. So you don't even see much of a liver blush. You don't see much of anything. That is not a positive HIDA. That is a useless HIDA. Don't call a general surgeon because you don't see anything. Um, so it's a, it's a useful test. This is, this is a positive one that you never see. What you like to see is the gallbladder come up. You, know, you see it light up somewhere around here in 
the bed of the liver, but you don't see it. You see the stuff flow into the small bowel and then go away. Uh, so that is uh, something useful. So what about management? That, this is where it gets a little dicey. So what about management? Depends on how sick they are. Okay. So real sick? Perk drain. Okay. Not so sick? So uh, perk drain versus cholecystectomy. Uh, and there actually are some things in between. People... You can operatively just do a cholecystostomy. You can do partial cholecystectomies. You can do things in between a full-blown cholecystectomy. The gold standard is still to take the gallbladder out, but you have to weigh that against the risks of taking a sick patient to the operating room. So certainly antibiotics are clearly part of it. Uh, and then some sort of drainage. I mean, one, one way to think about it is the gallbladder is now basically an abscess. And you drain an abscess. So you could that's how the perk drain can work. You drain it well. But if the patient's not all that sick, you know. I think sometimes we, we've gotten so into this idea of doing perk drains that sometimes in somebody who really isn't all that sick, you know, who we'd better off just getting the whole gallbladder out, we tend not to. But it, you know, again that's that's certain judgment. The literature goes any way you want it. People describe their series of I did X and it worked well for me. You know, so it's not great literature to say you should do one or the other. Certainly, there's, there's good literature that drains work. It's important, though, if you do that, and the patient doesn't do well, you may still need to do a cholecystectomy because that wall, if it's gangrenous, it's just going to fall apart, so your drain is not going to do what you want it to do. So it's important to realize that a drain may not be the answer. And then there's controversy about, well, they get better, now do I take the gallbladder out or not? That's a whole other question. <clears throat> Okay, so sometimes there are things related to stuff we do to people. So let's say a 65-year-old patient has a stroke, gets trach and peg, and now some abdominal distension and sepsis. Yeah, it was done two days ago, and uh, so this this is stomach. That's the inside of the peg, and obviously it's not in the stomach anymore. And all this fluid is actually tube feeds. Um, feeding the peritoneal cavity doesn't work. Don't Don't try that. Um, so this can happen. So it's important, really important, to take good care of all the tubes and things we put into patients. Um, here's another potential thing, the, the buried bumper, where it's pulled out. And you'd be surprised, actually, if this, if this happens after a little while where it's kind of scored in, that patient might actually be getting fed, just having some pain around there. And the, two, the feeds are actually getting into this tract and getting into the stomach. But anyway... Key thing is be careful about any tubes we put in people. All right, um, all right. This 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 case I loved. So this is this this actually is a patient I had. He's somewhere around 68 years old. He's driving across Interstate 80 in Pennsylvania, uh, middle of nowhere. Gets this diffuse abdominal pain, and and when he gets, he's able to pull the car over. This is not a trauma situation. And but he goes to the local hospital, and he's got hypotension and pulse style mass. So what do we? So someone in, in the old days, when, you know, when I used to round with Florence Nightingale, this was called abdominal apoplexy. <laughs> but, you know, rupturing aneurysm. So, you know, you pop, pop the ultrasound probe, you see a big aneurysm there, and, you know, the picture fits. If you, you know, aren't so convinced, you get a CAT scan, you can see the aneurysm and all this blood around it. So he had a ruptured AAA. And obviously, you know, somebody had acute rupture or something. Bottom line is the guy's got to be in the operating room. 
He's got to get fixed. So he's at this little hospital. They operate on him, fix his AAA. And then, uh, actually, wait, I'll, we'll come back to him in a second. Okay, so other causes of abdominal hemorrhage like this, you know, sometimes minor trauma, like someone doesn't realize he bumped his spleen last week and then you get delayed rupture of the spleen. Tumors, vasculitis, like a patient that we've got in the SICU, right? Well, maybe she's got vasculitis. I don't know. What she, uh, actually, she's left the SICU, but uh, ectopic pregnancies, anticoagulation. Anticoagulation, you get spontaneous bleeding. Not as, it's uncommonly intraperitoneal, but rectus sheath, retroperitoneum. And you can bleed a heck of a lot in those spaces. So it's worth always you know, thinking about those things. Um, the, the, uh, the intervention usually is going to IR if it doesn't stop spontaneously when you stop the anticoagulation. But anyway, this guy leads to another good problem to talk about. So postoperatively, he's kind of okay, but he's a little hypotensive. And at this little hospital, they think he's got acute coronary syndrome. So this is when they send him to tertiary care center. But they sent him to the cardiologists because they thought he was having ACS. And being cardiologists, you know, you've got to hammer all the world's nail. They cath the guy, and his cath is normal. And then at some point along the way, they actually took the sheets down and looked at his belly. His belly is like, you know, like he's got triplets in there, and it's tight as a drum, um, and he's got an abdominal compartment syndrome. And we actually operate on him. And not only that, he's got a dead sigmoid. So uh, it's important to look at the whole patient. It's a key message. But that, that leads into a little discussion about abdominal compartment syndrome. And I love the fact that there's actually this World Society for Abdominal Compartment Syndrome. I have no idea. I mean, this, it's, yeah, it's, it seems like it's a fairly simple concept. <laughs> but what am I? I'm just a simple surgeon. I don't know. Anyway. Well, meetings in exotic places are good things, too. So maybe that's what it is. Um, but talking about an, an important clinical problem. So it's important, you know, if you're going to measure abdominal pressure, you do it correctly. The patient should be flat, you know, fully in place. You, you put in, you know, hook in some kind of manometer on the side port. You put in just 25 cc so you don't overdistend it because that will increase the pressure. And then you measure abdominal compartment syndrome. I don't know, you don't need this fancy device that, you know, whatever company is peddling, but, you know, it's a pretty simple thing to, to do. And physical exam is actually pretty good, too. If you can match with somebody's belly, they don't have abdominal compartment syndrome. So in terms of definitions, we talk about intraabdominal hypertension as being greater than 12 millimeters of mercury. Over 20 with some organ dysfunction is the technical uh, abdominal compartment syndrome. So that just having over 20 doesn't necessarily mean you have it. Uh, and this is an important point, and it plays into intrathoracic pressures, too. you got some guy that's, you know, 150 kilos. His normal intrathoracic pressure is not what ours is. His normal intra-abdominal pressure is not what ours is. So he does not have an abdominal compartment syndrome when his, his abdominal pressure is 20, unless he's got organ failure and other stuff going on. Oops. Didn't mean to do that. Okay. Uh, another thing to look at is abdominal perfusion pressure, which is MAP versus intra-abdominal pressure. And you want to keep that over uh, 60. So that could be part of your management, at least. And this gets divided into primary, secondary, tertiary. Primary being something in the abdomen, um, like a ruptured AAA or something like that. Uh, secondary being something extra-abdominal. And we're recognizing that more and more. Like burn patients get massive fluid resuscitation 
can get abdominal compartment syndromes. Tertiary is when it happens again after you've done something to the patient to fix it the first time. Uh, and then there's a, a grading system based on the pressure. Uh, you know, bottom line is if it's under 20, who cares for the most part? Under, above 20, then you've got to start thinking about problems. Over 25, think about it a little bit more. Uh, but you've got to put it in the context of the whole picture uh, of that patient as whether or not somebody really ought to do something about the abdominal compartment syndrome. Uh, risk factors, massive fluid resuscitation, massive transfusions, hypothermia, base deficit, um, being obese, uh, play into it. Uh, it affects all kinds of organs. It doesn't take much in the way of increased pressure to decrease blood flow to the kidneys. If you're an anesthesiologist in the operating room with somebody that's having laparoscopic surgery, you may see a decrease in urine output just because of blowing up the abdomen due to the case. You shouldn't necessarily then flood the patient with fluid. Uh, pulmonary, obviously, increasing intrathoracic pressures. Uh, cardiac, you decrease feeding return. Uh, it may affect your CVP, and, you know, we all can discuss whether CVP is useful to look at anyway. Uh, splenic blood flow, obviously, can decrease. Portal flow decreases. And then even neuro, and this is, you know, something out of this institution, this sort of multi-compartment syndrome and decreasing intracranial pressure by decompressing an abdomen um, with multiple trauma patients. Uh, so all this can happen. It affects all organs. So it is important. Uh, it seems like we're seeing less of it. One, because we avoid crystalloids in a lot of our resuscitations now. In the trauma world, the abdomen stays open. You can't, almost can't have this with an open abdomen. I have seen somebody with an open abdomen, and the, the, the drape was actually sticking so well, it was actually tight, and the intrathoracic pressures were going up, and the patient was better when we just slit the plastic a little bit. Uh, but in general, close, open abdomen, this doesn't happen. Um, burn resuscitation, more plasma and colloids. So non-operative management would be sedation, maybe paralysis. If you, there's some luminal contents you can get rid of, like an NG tube, rectal tubes, that helps. If there's fluid, uh, ascites, you can drain that. Uh, optimizing abdominal perfusion pressure and correct the positive fluid balance, get the fluid off them. And basically, you know, when those aren't working, you just have to open the abdomen. That's, you know, pretty straightforward. And the basic goal is to allow everything to expand, uh, decrease pressure. You have to still then protect everything on the inside. So that can sometimes be a challenge in terms of addressing that. You protect the gut itself so you don't end up injuring it and getting fistulas later, but you allow the stuff to expand, not that the patient doesn't have increased abdominal pressure. Okay, questions about any of that? So some general comments about sort of all this badness. Classification of peritonitis, we talk about primary peritonitis as what? SPP, sometimes called that, yeah. So spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, somebody who's got ascites that gets infected, that's sometimes called primary peritonitis. It's usually simple bugs, not a big issue. Secondary, obviously, means secondary to something, so that's usually, you know, perforation of something or deadness. Uh, and then you're dealing with gram-negatives, anaerobes. The other type of paradise that's, that's important to think about is tertiary, which is basically somebody who's had secondary and now gets another problem. So, like, if somebody has a perf diverticulum last week and now they're not looking so well and you think that maybe there's an abscess or they're leaking from something, that could be tertiary peritonitis. And the key thing, aside from dealing with draining something or operating if you have to, 
the bugs that you have to worry about have now changed because the guy's been on some other antibiotics. So you now have to worry about fungus, the resistant gram negatives. So thinking about primary, secondary, tertiary helps you think about what antibiotics you want to give people. Another really important thing that to think about, too, is if you've got somebody that's got an acute abdomen, let's say you decided this guy's got dead bowel and needs to be in the operating room, that patient doesn't necessarily need to be in the operating room right now. Now, on the other hand, you're not going to say, okay, let's schedule this for tomorrow morning, but you need to resuscitate the patient before you go to the OR, which is different than a guy with a ruptured spleen that you cannot fix without taking the spleen out or putting a clamp on the splenic artery. So if somebody's bleeding, you need to do something right now, stop the bleeding, because you can't fix them without stopping it. Here, if you take somebody who's still kind of under-resuscitated, you know, needs some more fluid, you haven't kind of tuned up some pressors, and you take them to the OR and you give them general anesthetic, they go, <laughs> So it's worth taking, I mean, you know, I'm not talking about a lot of time. I mean, you can do this, hopefully, quickly, you know, over the next hour or so, maybe a little more, but tank them up with the fluids they need, get them on the pressures they need, add any monitoring you need, so that now when they go to the OR, it's going to be safer to put them under anesthetic. Uh, this is a good review. This is actually several years old now, but in terms of um, diagnosis and management, particularly the guidelines for antibiotics. Uh, so I'd point you to that if you're looking for more detail. Uh, so a few points from that paper, though. Predicting failure of source control, some of this is pretty obvious. It's tougher when you've been delayed for a day or two. Patients are really sick, it's tougher. Advanced age, comorbidities. Poor nutritional status, whether it's by low albumin or just obviously poor nutritional status. And the guy looks cachectic. Um, if it's diffuse peritonitis, it's just hard to get control of all that stuff. And if you can't even feel like you've got it controlled, <laughs> obviously it's not controlled. Um, so these are important things in terms of how you're going to manage this, this complicated abdominal problem. Uh, cancer plays into it, too. Cultures are always kind of a little bit of a controversy. In general, they're really low. I mean, if you've got perforation of the bowel, you're, you're culturing stool. Is that really useful? <laughs> um, you know, so low-risk patients, it's not important. People that have been in the healthcare system for a while or higher risk, it might be useful because then you're going to figure out if they actually have some funky yeast in there or anaerobes or other stuff, funky gram negatives. So it might be a reasonable thing to do. It, but it doesn't really have to be like an absolute thing. And blood cultures, of, of all the diseases that make people septic, I mean, intra-abdominal infections are notorious for not having positive blood cultures as opposed to like a pneumonia where you easily seed the systemic circulation. You tend not to do that from the gut. Uh, you, you might. But so you shouldn't focus on the blood culture. You got to focus on stopping the stool. So given all that, we typically take out our antibiotic shotgun and fire, right? So what antibiotics do they, rec they recommend for just somebody coming in from the community? You know, second generation cephalosporinsufoxacin. They're really in the carbapenems, uh, moxifloc. I mean, you can use almost anything for a sort of run-of-the-mill coming off the street intra-abdominal process. If you, for whatever reason, can't use one of these sort of combination things that has anaerobic and gram-negative coverage, you can give gram-negative coverage and add flagell. So there's some multiple possibilities here. More severe, like the guy's been in the healthcare system for a while or it's been delayed diagnosis, then the, the more serious carbapenems are high on the list for all these. Zosin is good. And again, you can use some more you know, higher-level third-generation uh, cephalosporins plus flagell, so you have a bunch of combinations you could use.
What they don't recommend, Unison, which we use all the time for run-of-the-mill stuff because it's you know sort of less spectrum than Zosyn and usually just fine, but there is some more resistance coming around, so they don't recommend that. They don't recommend septicetin or clindamycin because they also have increased resistance. Empiric antifungals, a lot of surgeons will throw that in, particularly if it's an upper GI tract problem. They kind of recommend against that, but it's kind of hard to argue a whole lot, particularly with the upper GI tract because you do have more yeast if you have a duodenal perp or something. You know, it's hard to argue because the other side of it is if it's actually in there and you don't treat them, a little more risk of problems. Aminoglycosides, you know, unless you don't have any other antibiotic to use, aminoglycosides really should never be part of your coverage. Uh, if it's more healthcare associated, like somebody's been in the system for a while, has gotten some other antibiotics, then certainly think about fungal, enterococcus, MRSA, the usual resistant stuff. Duration of therapy is a good question. It's like a lot of things, you know, you want to you want to start broad, narrow things down, and then stop them when you don't need them anymore. So the general rule of thumb that has been around for a long time with the intra-abdominal processes is generally four to seven days, but the patient, but you look for when the patient looks good. Fever's gone, leukocytosis is gone, bandemia is gone for 24 hours, stop the antibiotics. So recently is a study, this great name for this trial, stop it trial. Study to optimize perineal infection therapy. 518 patients complicated intra-abdominal infections. They had to have source control somehow, you know, whatever determined for source control. And they randomized them to that sort of standard I just mentioned or four days, boom, that's it, no more. And probability of no events, you can see that the lines are pretty much identical. And this was a composite thing of, of surgical site infections, recurrent infections, or death. Uh, the interesting thing here, uh, again, is sort of the total of, of the primary outcome events, death, no difference because you know, a few of them died. But diagnosis of surgical site infection, time to event, it was actually longer in the control group for both the surgical site infection and recurrent abdominal. But the numbers were the same. So the suggestion is that by keeping them on the antibiotics longer, you just delay you figuring out that the patient's got a problem. So you don't prevent the problem, you just delay it. So you're kind of, it's smoldering there, but you don't see it. So the bottom line is probably four days is all you need. Important thing, though, is if there's clinical failure, like the patient tells a white count or recurrent fever, think about extra abdominal sources, maybe think about antibiotics, but the number one thing, if something bad happened in the abdomen and now five days later the patient's not doing well, pretty good likelihood that something in the belly is causing it, not a new pneumonia or a UTI. <clears throat> Anybody know who this is? Willie Sutton. Famous bank robber. That's where the money is. I mean, basically, you know, if a surgeon has been somewhere and the patient's not doing well, all my surgical colleagues <laughs> uh, should listen. There's a decent likelihood that's where the problem is. Although, you know, surgeons, the ABCs of surgery are accused, blame, criticized, deny, and there's there's always denial here. It can't be in my operation, but it, it can be. I mean, you should look at some other things too, but don't assume it's something else. Surgical drains, you can't drain the entire abdomen. So usually if a surgeon leaves drains in, it's a very focused place to leave the drain, where there was an abscess or you're worried about a pancreatic leak, which you do kind of want to drain and let it kind of run amok. 
Um, you want to control fistula, perhaps. So there are reasons to leave drains in the abdomen, uh, but they ought to be very specific. And the key thing about drains is that drains don't drain. Just because a tube is sitting somewhere doesn't mean it's draining what you think. I mean, chest tubes. Chest tube gets clogged. Yes, it's in the pleural space, but nothing's coming out. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Same with drains in the abdomen. So drains don't always drain what you want. Wound management, primary closure, is just closing the abdomen directly. Delayed primary closure, you close the fascia, and then you might close the skin later. And then secondary intention is just letting it heal from the bottom. Vacs like this are great ways to cover things, maybe help try and get things together so that when you either can do a delayed primary closure of the fascia or at least have a smaller hernia to repair later on. Um, so that's the important thing. And I think an important message too is surgical infections are different than medical infections. The point being, surgical infections, you can remove the problem. You can cut out the gallbladder. You can cut out the dead bowel. You can drain the pus, which is different than somebody with pneumonia. So pneumonia, you know, we have certain guidelines. We're going to treat the patient with, you know, XYZ antibiotics, and it's going to be for seven days or eight days or whatever. And we know that that regimen, 95% of people will do fine. Surgical things, we've removed the problem. So the antibiotics are kind of icing on the cake. Uh, and the other point, as I've said already, is if patients do well, go back to square one of was the, surgery, the original thing done appropriately? Is there now a, a, another leak or some other problem? Final comments, presentations of abdominal things can be subtle. It can be very confusing in the ICU if patients have other problems. So the workup is complicated. Uh, but there are some specific entities to think about, but sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes you just got to say, this guy needs to be in the operating room. He's got something horrible going on in the belly and needs an operation. And early surgical consultation is important. Even if the surgeon doesn't end up doing anything, way better to get him on board before the patient's dying of the intra-abdominal process. And really, for surgical things, it does come down to how's my cutting? Have I drained the problem adequately? Have I cut out the dead tissue adequately? That's what's going to determine how the patient's going to do. And not necessarily that I pick the right antibiotic or have the antibiotic continue for the right duration. Thanks a lot.